please rate, review, and subscribe to Dare to Explore wherever you listen to podcasts. Dare to Explore is powered by the U.S. Space and Rocket Center Education Foundation, which supports the educational programs of the U.S. Space and Rocket Center, home of Space Camp, working to inspire the next generation of explorers. Learn more about the Foundation's mission at rocketcenterfoundation.org. On May 14, 1973, America's first space station and first crewed research laboratory in space blasted off on the last Saturn V rocket. This was Skylab. Following a near-catastrophic design issue requiring in-orbit repairs by astronauts shortly after launch, Skylab's crew conducted hundreds of experiments and captured nearly a quarter of a million images of the sun with the onboard solar observatory. Before any of this could happen, however, it had to first be built. Ron Paulus is a retired NASA project engineer who worked on Apollo, Skylab, and shuttle missions. I'm Ryan Faricelli. Join me as I learn what makes this extraordinary individual dare to explore. I've got a spaceship that I'm waiting for I'm flying up to the stars I'm gonna dare to explore this time And I'll let you know what I find I'm Ron Paulus. I grew up in northern Indiana. When I got out of high school, I had an assignment to be in the first Air Force Academy class. And growing up in a farm in northern Indiana at that time, that summer I graduated, I realized I didn't even know where an Air Force Academy was, what it was. I didn't even know at that time where Colorado was. <laughs> I said, I'm not doing that. So I ended up going to Purdue. I reached an engineering degree there, mechanical engineering. Took five years to do that, so I took some master-level courses in rocket propulsion and missile systems engineering. So when I graduated, the Army Ballistic Missile Agency gave me a job as a civilian, even though I was only going to be as a civilian for six months. Uh, so I came here to Redstone Arsenal in June of 1960. Um, I was here six months, went on active duty, and realized when I went on active duty uh, as a lieutenant, I could extend for a year and have my choice of assignments. So I had myself assigned back to Army Ballistic Military Agency. So I spent my, next, spent my next six years there and got to know many of the people uh, who were transitioning over to uh, Marshall Space Flight Center. Now, the Marshall Space Flight Center was formed starting in December of 59 and completed at the end of June of 1960. And it was designated then the Marshall Space Flight Center. Of course, from that, they also formed Kennedy Space Center. Dr. Debus, who headed Kennedy Space Center, uh, we built Mississippi Test Facility, which became Stennis Space Center, built Slidell Computer Facility, and of course, we activated Michoud Assembly Facility. But after you know, my three years there, uh, I worked mainly the, the Pershing Project, which is a two-stage nuclear tip missile. Uh, soon as I got after active duty, I joined the Marshall Space Flight Center, went to work in Dr. Rudolph's organization. Uh, Dr. Rudolph was the Saturn V program manager, brilliant manager. Uh, in 1931, 
he was one of the first in the world to build a working liquid riding engine. I think he was the third one hired by Dornberger to form in the German uh, missile, guided missile development team. Uh, von Braun, I think, was the first. At the end of the war, they came to this country under an Operation Overcast in 1945. Uh, that became Paperclip in 46. But uh, went to work there, uh, became a project engineer on Saturn V, got to see all of the Saturn V, which is three stages in the instrument unit. Uh, of course, you add the spacecraft to that, you add to have the, finally the Saturn Apollo flight vehicle or space vehicle. Right. Interestingly enough, at Houston, they all, always call it the Apollo Saturn uh, flight vehicle rather than Saturn Apollo. <laughs> right. But <laughs> Houston and Marshall were never on really friendly terms. Uh, My understanding is that that gentle rivalry still exists. Uh, yes, I. Uh, at that time, I didn't understand why. Uh, it turned out when NASA f- was formed in 1968, the Von Braun team stayed with the Army two more years. And, uh, and that left the NASA without any large rocket experienced people. And they f- designated a bunch of research people, very bright people, out of Langley to form a space task group. In a large sense, they ran NASA. And then in December of 59, NASA and the, and, and the Eisenhower administration agreed that DOD would not have a role in space. And they began to transition. Now, in that time frame, though, they had been funded by DOD to study large launch vehicles associated with the stabilization of base on the moon or a large space station. That finally resulted in the Saturn family of vehicles. So it's the background is really interesting. So, but when the Von Braun team joined and formed these organizations, they brought in George Miller, associate administrator for manned space flight. And George was the boss. There was right. no doubt about that. He brought in General Sam Phillips as the Apollo program director. Who's ever heard of those people? History's been modified and they've been forgotten. Right. What a crime. Uh, and the, the, space, the space task group, the STG, were told, you're going to Houston to form the Manned Spacecraft Center. And they did indeed do that. They've been pretty well running NASA. And suddenly they're three levels down. And nothing happens without Von Braun's input. He's already famous. He's been traveling uh, with Disney. Right. The, the Collier's Magazine articles. And that time we didn't have TV like we do today or, or the cell phones. Right. And people read those magazines. So he was famous. So when there'd be a press conference, all the questions be addressed to Von Braun. And these STG guys were pretty well ignored. So they were a little. They were a little resentful. Uh, their ego got badly bruised. Sure. And nothing happened without Von Braun's input. And when I mention, uh, I worked both at Marshall Space Science Center, and then in '68 I went to Kennedy as a project engineer at Apollo. Admiral Middleton asked me to come down there, gave me a promotion in the middle of promotion for, uh, uh, promotion freeze to do that. So it's obvious to all of us, both at Marshall and at Kennedy, that the JSC guys didn't like us. I told Bob Stewart that, you know, one of the shuttle astronauts, Bob, they didn't dislike you. They hated you. <laughs> it became part of the corporate culture, and it right. still is. <laughs> it's kind of dumb, but <laughs> egos are fragile. Now, how we forgot George Miller and Gen- General Sam Phillips, I don't know how that's happened. 
but it's wrong. Yeah. Uh, and we've forgotten Arthur Rudolph as well, and that's wrong. So can you tell me why should people remember each of these three people? Well, uh, George Miller made big decisions. The, the decision to go all up on the first Saturn V launch um, was key to making uh, that landing in, in, in that decade. Right. Okay. Marshall people, including my boss, Art had never done it that way. Von Brahm accepted it fairly soon. Art Rudolph didn't. And finally, there's a meeting. I think he went to Siemens, and Siemens kind of positive. And he went to George Miller and was giving me his rationale why they'd never done it that way. And it's my understanding that George says, so what? That was the end of that. <laughs> so that was a big decision. Um, Art Rudolph, if Von Braun was the, the great architect, Rudolph was the builder. He got it built. I think all of us that worked in that time frame would recognize without Arthur, we would not have made it in that decade. He'd build a working liquid rocket engine uh, early. He'd been a manufacturing manager uh, of the B-2. So he knew both the technology and the manufacturing. Right. And he was a leader and a manager. He was good. And also he had Bill Sneed, who was a phenomenal program management guy. Uh, the program control center that Bill put together was a wonder in itself. But, uh, yeah, Arthur has been mistreated in my mind, and that's a pity as well. Yeah. Um, but my time here at Marshall, um, I learned so much watching Bill Sneed and Art Rudolph, and uh, yeah, always took Arthur as a role honor model. And later, I ended up managing a missile development program. And I thought I could do, I didn't come close. <laughs> and a different circumstances, totally. But uh, it really bo still bothers me. You know, <laughs> I knew what needed to be done, but a different environment, totally. Uh, it just didn't work. Sure. Uh, regret that. But uh, after I, so I only worked development programs. I worked Saturn V and then Air Marshall Space Flight Center, Apollo at Kennedy. I worked the Skylab student experiments as well as the rest of the experiments for Kennedy Space Center. And then uh, during shuttle, Kennedy sent me back to Marshall as a technical and management interface for the solid rocket booster. But I only worked development programs. As soon as that was developed, I told my boss, Bob Gray, you need to fire me. <laughs> what I needed to do for you is done. So I worked back, back again, briefly back to work for Marshall. And then the Army asked me to come back to the Missile Command. I ended up managing that, that program. Um, and then I left that and had my own consulting business for 10, 11 years. Became nationally known expert in DOD acquisition management. Embark on an exciting journey into the world of scuba in the heated underwater astronaut trainer. This ticketed activity helps you learn the skills it takes to be confident and safe underwater and is guided by trained dive instructors, leading you in a series of tasks. Advanced ticket purchase is encouraged to reserve your dive time. Visit rocketcenter.com for more information. What was your role in the development of the Saturn V rocket? I did a lot of establishing. Jim Nichols, who worked for Boeing, um, 
Jim worked for me. Uh, we developed the Saturn V configuration management program. Uh, from that, I worked on developing the overall interface management program. I modified the contracts uh, in, in the program to where the contractors had to coordinate uh, changes to the interface control documents before they submitted them. They would coordinate with the interfacing contractors. Uh, got involved in logistics. I mean, anything you can think of that a project engineer might get involved in, you know, I would get involved in. Sure. And the same type of thing at Kennedy Space Center. Again, trying to get the configuration management programs between the centers squared away. Um, and that was crucial. The interfaces between two contractors, for example, okay. would be identified in an interface control document. Right? That's put in their contract. Right? Now, one of them is doing some work and he says, oh, I can't meet that requirement or I need this modified. He prepares an engineering proposal with a preliminary interface revision notion set up to where he had to go coordinate with the contractor on the other side of the interface. Hopefully, they would both submit engineering proposals, change proposals with that same PIRN and reach agreement so we could approve those and move on rapidly. Frequently, that didn't happen. So the, the idea is both companies are designing a piece and those pieces have, have to work to fit together. together. Okay. And it controls everything. Electrical, vibration, structural, smoothness of the interface, flow rates on the fluids. You can go on and on. A contractor will want his side changed and the other side says no. But you have to resolve those um, before a pre-flight review. Right. Uh, you couldn't go into a uh, flight with an open interface revision notion. Preliminary interface revision notes. They had to be IRNs, not PIRNs. Right. That sort of thing. Uh, it was just engineering management uh, and controlling interfaces, getting people to work together. They had some hard points. You know, who's taking the risk if the flow rate changes, if the vibration frequency changes, or the, uh, the strength of that vibration, or whatever is then in that. Uh, it makes a difference at who's at risk. Uh, and those, uh, uh, that was just a, an interesting concept. The Air Force, Colonel Ben Bellis had developed a series of management documents, uh, the 500 series documents. And we started with the Air Force uh, document and then modified it to fit Apollo. And I was part of that. So you started doing this with the Saturn V launch vehicle and then uh, later and, moved to Kennedy where you were actually working on the lunar lander. No, the, on the whole flight vehicle. Okay. And people were used to uh, a lot of freedom. Right. To change change things. And and we would baseline. When you tested something and it worked, uh, you wanted to baseline it and not have the engineers just willy-nilly make changes. Right. Without perhaps retesting. So we'd baseline things. You started out with part one engineering specifications. And then as you baseline more, you added more detail to those specs until finally your part two would include everything. And you don't build engineering. From engineering, there's manufacturing engineering. And finally from that, there's planning paper, which really is what the tech worked to to build something. In the end, we wanted it set up that even the planning paper was under control. Because once you had it working, don't change it without knowing what you were changing. Yeah. It's just crucial you do that. 
And you had to do this for every single part? Uh, across the board. You know, tried to get that implemented across the whole program. Do you happen to know roughly how many pieces oh, it no. was? <laughs> I have no idea. no idea. I'm sure there were millions, but... Uh, do you yeah, know how, yeah. how many companies you were juggling? Well, the major ones, of course. Uh, first stage was Boeing uh, and Marshall Space Flight Center in-house. Right. Uh, second stage, North American Information Center. Third stage, McDonnell Douglas. Uh, IBM and Marshall Space Flight Center, the instrument unit, right across the highway here. Right. And the engines, the F-1 and J-2 engines were Rocketdyne. Um, ground support equipment was GE. And you know, you'd go on and on. Sure. Um, and then, of course, when you begin to add the spacecraft, Grumman had the lunar module, North American spacecraft and the service module. Right. Uh, the command module and the service module. So it's uh, a lot of contractors, not counting the subs. And the... Uh, and there were service contractors as well. Um, Boeing was a, had the Thai contract, technical integration, and engineering contract. And they did a lot of things, including processing a lot of paper associated with engineering changes that came on and right. tracking those changes and presenting that in a visible way when we had the management reviews. The management system that Bill Sneed put together in the Program Control Center huge slides you know immense slides slid out of the wall to be visit visible uh, along these tracks and each stage would have their complete schedule displayed up on there wow and it, and it would show on there where the schedules were behind <laughs> and there was a name on there who had the control the ability to change the schedule versus who was responsible for, for dis- displaying the real status of the, which was usually the project manager. Right. Rudolph had the authority to change the schedule. But even that, you have a lot of limitation on that because it built interface with other centers hardware. Right. Uh, and test facilities and transportation. I just, you know, things went on and on with complexities. Early on, when we were talking about logistics, the first and second stages are so big, you can't move them by, by rail or right. road. Uh, and we actually discussed using them by blimp. And uh, <laughs> Rudolph made the decision uh, we'd, we'd have to support the whole blimp industry, which was dying at that time. Right. Uh, and we went with the barges. Now, if you think about it, you put the stage on its transport on a barge, and you put a cover over it, and it's pushed by a tug. Now, the tug master can't see over that. Right. So you had to rig those. Uh, and one time, we had the tug and the barge up here with the stage here at Marshall, and one of the locks went out. So TVA had to build a ramp, a road, another ramp. We had to find another tug and a barge and outfit them. So from here, we'd go down to that, run them up over and down to the new, the new barge, and continue <laughs> on from there. And I think John Goodrum was our logistics guy, as I recall. Uh, John's one of the many of us are gone now. So few of us left yeah. who actually worked the programs. And we're blessed to be able to come to the Space and Rocket Center and talk about what we did, who the people were, how the hardware works. Uh, and the guests are so exceptionally gracious in thanking us for being here. It is a rewarding experience to be here and, and talk through, uh, through the program and the hardware and the people uh, with the guests. 